invite you to turn with me in your Bibles, if you have one, to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 24, for our Old Testament scripture reading. It's a very significant passage, as we find this is a particular passage under debate in Jesus' own time, as we will find in our sermon text, he will speak authoritatively on how to understand best the intention of this particular law. It's a law concerning divorce. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 to 4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. That is an abomination before the Lord. You shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now turning with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, as we continue making our way through the Sermon on the Mount. If you recall, last week, Jesus addressed the matter of lust and adultery, and this week, Jesus continues and brings us to the next logical consideration as he considers the matter of adultery, I'm sorry, of uh, divorce and adultery. Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. These are hard sayings. We cannot understand what Jesus is saying unless we give due diligent attention to what it is that he says. And even then, we cannot have any hope of understanding Jesus' clear statements apart from the work of the Spirit given to illuminate us that we might believe and understand. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we pray that you would open up our eyes uh, to hear your word and that you would convict us of our sin when necessary, that you would remind us of our duties where required, and that you would be gracious to us in all things. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Just a few years ago, I remember seeing in the news and on social media where a prominent evangelical pastor and relationship guru had announced on Instagram that both he and his wife were divorcing. There had been no marital infidelity. There had been no abuse, no abandonment. They wanted to make those things abundantly clear. Rather, they wanted in this Instagram post Uh, speak of their divorce as some sort of bittersweet celebration of sorts. They said this, they said, we are writing to share the news that we are separating and we will continue our life together as friends. It is with sincere love for one another and understanding of our unique story as a couple that we are moving forward with this decision. We hope to create a generous and supportive future for each other and for our three amazing children in the years ahead. 
I think in older days, saying that you would be sharing a sincere love for one another and creating a generous and supportive future for your family would actually consist in a committed marriage, not in an announcement of divorce. And yet this is the day and age in which we find ourselves both within evangelical circles and without. Even in Hollywood, we read of celebrity marriages that will end with these kind of celebratory announcements as they uh, declare that they are in the midst of a conscious uncoupling. To quote one power couple in Hollywood, claiming that they had simply fallen out of love. More and more as marriages are seen as little more than business contracts enacted to provide a tax incentive, we find that marriage is treated more and more like something like a car lease. You sign up for it for three or four years, and then it's time for the contract to expire, for you to trade in your old model for something new and perhaps younger. We read of divorces as celebrations where the divorces are being declared of having no particular real grounds. We have simply grown apart, they say. We have become different people. We have fallen out of love, and yet they declare and remain, quote, unquote, best friends, committed to raising their children separately, together. All while pretending as if divorce is not violent, as it rips the one flesh arrangement in two and brings harm not just to the couple, but to the children and to all those around it. In our text this morning, Jesus addresses the matter of what we might call today no-fault divorce, as it was a common feature in his own day as well. Even the religious celebrities we will find of his own day had hailed no-fault divorce as keeping in accord with Scripture. Here, Jesus calls that out for what it is. He calls it out as sin, a sin that will perhaps even lead to further adultery. Now, I need to say right off the bat here that Jesus is not saying here everything that is to be said about divorce. And that's why I had us read the Confession of Faith, chapter 24, earlier. There are particular grounds for divorce, and there are particular cases in which people are allowed to remarry. Here, Jesus is really addressing one particular instance, the matter of what we call no-fault divorce. And this is because the debate has arisen over how best to interpret a particular matter in Jesus' own day, how best to understand Deuteronomy chapter 24. And of course, this is going to raise a number of questions. I'm letting you know now I'm not going to give you all the answers. Because we find that as we make our way through Matthew's gospel, it raises a series of new questions when we get to chapter 19, where the disciples themselves come to Jesus and say, okay, well, if this is true, what about X? And I think it's best that we leave those questions for when we get to Matthew chapter 19. Here, Jesus is teaching us Uh, our basic multiplication tables before we have to deal with differential equations. Here, Jesus is addressing the matter of no-fault divorce, and in doing so, directing our attention to what marriage really is and how low a view so many of us have of marriage and how high a view the Lord himself holds the estate of marriage for the purpose for which it has been given. So I'd like us to consider two particular things this morning. 
First, I would like us to consider the case of no-fault divorce. You'll see that in verse 31. And then finally, we will, in verse 32, consider the case of a faulty remarriage. So the case of no-fault divorce and the case of a faulty remarriage. He's not speaking about all remarriages, but a particular instance in a particular case. Well, as I've already said, in Jesus' own day, there's a big debate over how to interpret Deuteronomy chapter 24 among the people of God, particularly as it relates to the matter of divorce. That was why we had our Old Testament scripture reading coming from Deuteronomy 24 this morning. If a man takes to himself a wife and he discovers any indecency in her, let him write her a certificate of divorce. Well, with, among the rabbinical schools of Jesus' day, there were two particular camps, two distinct ways to interpret this particular passage. On the one hand, there were some who said this, well, a man can divorce his wife if he finds any indecency. The emphasis falling on the word indecency, and that word indecency kind of being a catch-all term for sexual misconduct. If you recall, Jesus Last week, as we looked at uh, verses 27 to 30, Jesus talks about how broad a scope the seventh commandment applies in terms of adultery as it bears down not just on the act of adultery, but on so many other forms of sexual perversion. On the other hand, there's another group, perhaps the more popular view of Jesus' own day, where the emphasis was not on indecency, it was on the adjective used to describe the indecency. A man can divorce his wife if he finds any indecency. Uh, in this particular camp, those would say, well, if there's anything that a husband finds indecent about his wife, for instance, if she uh, burns uh, uh, the, the dinner, he doesn't like it, he can, he can kick her to the curb. If, he's no, if he no longer finds her attractive, well, he doesn't find her decent looking enough, he can kick her to the curb. All he has to do is sign a certificate of divorce. Say that this is no fault of her own, you go on your way, and everybody can live happily ever after separately. On the one hand, this conscious uncoupling sounds somewhat merciful. Now consider a, a couple who might be always at each other's throats, and they finally say, hey, look, you know what? Neither of us have cheated on one another, but this just doesn't seem to be working out. Why don't we just go our separate ways? Here, I'll even sign the piece of paper that says you've done nothing wrong. You could go on your way. I'll go on mine. Everything will be just peachy. We could go find the love of our lives somewhere else. That's what this particular school of thought said. They said, that's fine. This is keeping in keeping with the law of Moses. No harm, no foul. It seems merciful. But what Jesus is saying in this particular instance is that this is, in fact, a cruelty of the highest order. Jesus' point here is that there is, in fact, a lot of harm, more harm than you realize. It is violent. It is messy. In the words of the great folk singer Robert Zimmerman, it is murder most foul. I mean, to consider the situation in the ancient world, Typically, a man would get married around the age of 30, and his bride would typically be around 14, 15 years old. And coming in this particular culture, the woman was likely illiterate, would typically not work outside of the home. She's barely a teenager. 
Most would not have uh, an extensive dowry. If they did, they could perhaps live on that if they were kicked to the curb. But by and large, most women, if they found themselves in this situation, where would they have left to go? You think about that. It's it's not like they have a bachelor's degree to fall back upon. They can start working and taking care of themselves. Even though they have the certificate of divorce saying that they've done no wrong, anybody who's ever been the victim of divorce, anybody who has ever been the family of a divorce knows that there's a certain stigma, there's a cloud that hangs overhead. And when you look at Deuteronomy chapter 24, you find that the position that the, uh, the majority party of rabbis were saying, it, it actually doesn't really accord with Moses' intent at all. Moses actually here is giving the law in a way to protect the vulnerable, not to give an excuse for the husband to kick his wife to the curb so he could find a better cook or a much better looking bride. You know, if we look here at Deuteronomy 24, we we see this particular context. Here's a man who divorces a woman and she's done no wrong. And here Moses, as Jesus will later say, grants this as a concession because of the hardness of the man's heart. He says you can write her a certificate of divorce, but if she remarries under lawful circumstances and her second husband dies, then the first husband can't take her back. Now you think about the situation that this would happen. Think about this guy who's wanting to honor the marriage covenant. You think of, you know, these Hollywood superstars who are on their fourth or fifth marriage. You kind of want to say, why, why are you even getting married? Do you even think that this is a legitimate institution? I think there's something analogous that we see going on here. A guy who, on, on the one hand, he's like, okay, yeah, I'll marry you. And he goes, nah, you know, you burnt the toast. Kick you to the curb. And then she marries another guy. That guy dies. He goes, well, you know what? Toast wasn't that bad. Why don't you come on back? What is that actually communicating in the act of marriage? There is no real consistency. There is no real fidelity. There is no trustworthiness here. Uh, the, The marriage is contingent not upon the oath of the man who made it, the joint oath of the man and the bride. Rather, the the litmus test for the marriage is based off of how well the wife performs in the kitchen, or how, how beautiful she looks and retains her beauty. Uh, and we, we have to ask ourselves, what, what was the purpose of marriage? Who was it that instituted marriage? God instituted marriage as a picture of Christ's own faithfulness to his church. And here we find men who are doing whatever they can to get out from under the thumb of the law to, to not have to demonstrate that faithfulness despite the, the wear and tear of time and yet somehow still trying to do so and claim that they are still being, uh, they're still honoring uh, marriage as an institution. Uh, In one sense, they have now polluted the whole purpose of marriage. They've missed the whole reason why this thing had been instituted. Now, in Jesus' own day, the question had ceased to be, how does this law in Deuteronomy 24 protect the estate of marriage? How does this law do justice to ensuring the safety and the protection of the vulnerable of society? And now the question had become, what can a man legally get away with and not be counted as an adulterer? Is it just sexual indecency? Or is it any indecency? 
And that's what Jesus is attacking here. And that is the particular view that Jesus is setting within his crosshairs of those who have begun to strain gnats and pervert the righteousness of God and the dignity of marriage. These men who have now made new cultural norms and adapted them in such a way that it has twisted the word of God from its initial intent and purpose. That's the context here. And so Jesus is addressing, he says, you know, you've heard it was said, if a man wants to divorce his wife, just let him write, it, just let him write her the certificate of divorce. You've heard it was said, no fault divorce is fine, essentially is what Jesus is getting at here. But I'm here to tell you it's not fine. In Deuteronomy 24, in this particular debate, it's not any indecency, such as burnt toast, but rather the indecency that Moses had in mind was that of sexual indecency. That's why Jesus talks about the grounds for divorce as it relates to Deuteronomy 24 being that of sexual immorality. And of course, again, keeping in mind verses 27 to 30, Jesus already talked about how broad a scope that is, how one, how a husband can violate the marriage covenant, not simply by the act of adultery, but so through so many other forms of sexual perversion as well. Again, this reminds us that marriage did not originate with the civil government. Marriage is pre-government. Read your Bibles. Marriage begins in a garden. It begins prior to the fall. The government, the civil magistrate, is not instituted by God until after the fall. Here, God institutes marriage at creation before any state government had been erected. Marriage is something that God joins together. This is not simply a bare contract. Again, Malachi chapter 2, which we had read earlier, when a man and a woman uh, uh, vow to lifelong marriage, it says here, among the people of God, that God makes these two to be one, and in that union, he gives them a portion of his spirit as the bonding agent, as it were. I think this has tremendous ramification for how we think of marriage. You see, if this is true, if a man divorces his wife following the law of the civil magistrate under this no-fault divorce principle, How does God view it? Does God simply recognize the law of the land and go, oh, well, I guess I need to take a step, step back. Just approve it for what it is. Now I want you to consider this particular situation. You have a, long, a young couple who are married fresh out of high school. They have fallen in love. And however, after a few years, they have fallen out of love. And one day the husband is just simply sick of fighting and he wants out. He has not committed any act of infidelity, neither has she. They simply want a clean break. And so now the divorce comes. She is divorced, though she was married right out of high school. She has nowhere left to go. Her family has long since been deceased. She never went to college. She never worked. She meets a nice guy, however. And he takes her in under his wing and they get married. Look what Jesus says here in verse 32 in that particular situation. What has become of this woman? She is now guilty of adultery. We have to let that sink in. There's really no way to get around Jesus' statement here. It is a punch in the face. Look at that. Whoever divorces his wife on unbiblical grounds. Again, it's not speaking of the, the, the fact we're uh, divorced within the context of, of sexual immorality. 
but a man in the midst of that no-fault divorce scenario. She leaves, remarries somebody else. She is now considered an adulteress. Why? Consider the situation. The husband and wife have been joined in marriage, the first husband. There's no biblical grounds for divorce, even though the state recognizes it, God doesn't recognize it. So here's a woman who leaves because the husband has sent her away. She's married somebody else because that initial bond has not been severed. She is now guilty of committing adultery because that first marriage was in fact still legitimate in the eyes of God. You see, this is the reason why Jesus condemns false teaching. We say, that is hard. That is hard to hear. And yet, this is the very reason why Jesus condemns false teachers over and over and over again. Because when the blind lead the blind, it is not simply the blind leaders who fall into the ditch. Jesus says the blind lead the blind and both fall into the ditch. Here, you have these religious teachers of the day saying, hey, look, if the, the, if the marriage doesn't work out, that's fine. Just go ahead and break up and just try it again. Start all over. The Lord doesn't mind. When the opposite is the fact, God, in fact, does mind. You have a man who wants to kick his wife to the curb so he can uh, pursue other ventures. He now opens her up. He makes her vulnerable and puts her in the position where she might, in fact, commit adultery. From top to bottom, here are all who have failed to recognize the significance of marriage and the things that violate the marriage covenant. Just because a state might sanction no-fault divorce does not mean that God does. And see, we hear, again, I'm only applying this to the matter of no-fault divorce. I am not talking about cases of abuse or abandonment. I want to make that very, very clear. This is a very particular situation. It's that situation of the conscious uncoupling, as we hear uh, bandied about in the news and media today. But these partic this particular situation raises not just one, but two distinct questions that have to be addressed whenever a divorce happens. First question that the elders have to assess, if this happens within uh, the church body, is was the divorce biblical, and if so, on what grounds? Is there a guilty party? Is there an innocent party? Are both guilty? Or is just one? But it gives rise to a second question. Uh, is or are both parties or either party allowed to remarry? And it is certainly true that there are certain occasions where the divorced party is allowed to remarry. But in this particular situation, Jesus actually says it is not okay remarry because it makes you liable to the charge of adultery. A man cheats on his wife, they get a divorce. The wife who has been cheated on is perfectly free to remarry in the Lord. She is perfectly free to sue for divorce. According to our Confession of Faith 24.6, uh, the wife who has been abandoned such willful desertion in such a way that neither the church nor the civil government can rectify it. You have to address whether or not in that particular case is she able to remarry. But here Jesus is making the point that in that no-fault divorce scenario, since there has been no sexual immorality, that even the one who has been the victim of divorce 
is not allowed to remarry unless, of course, the prior, uh, her first husband dies or he himself remarries. You see, you see how these things get really complicated really quick? So I think we see this particular situation arise twice in the gospel. Jesus is giving us some very basic things that we've got to chew on. This is a big horse pill. But I think the reason he does this is because he's teaching us uh, how lightly we have treated marriage as an institution. Jesus is not saying anything new here. He's pointing his hearers to the original intent of the law. And all throughout Scripture, all throughout the Old Testament, the, the driving thrust of the Old Testament is this. God hates the violence of divorce. Anyone who has ever been the victim of a broken home knows exactly how violent it can be. It gets bloody. It gets messy. Those are the, the terms used to describe so many divorces that take place. And rightly so, because of a divorce takes that that one flesh union of man and wife uh, that, that has been made one by a portion of the Spirit, as God says in Malachi chapter 2, and has now ripped it in two. It upends and disorients not only the wife, but the children as well. Again, listen to what Malachi says, for the man who does not love his wife but divorces her. Notice that contrast there. What is the opposite of love in this statement? The man who does not love but divorces. In other words, what is divorce but an act of hatred? And that is exactly what the man in consideration here in Matthew chapter 5 is doing to his wife. It is an act of hatred to his first wife. Because not only is he kicking her to the curb, all under the guise of being merciful, he is now making her liable to, to the, the, the possibility that she herself might be constituted an adulteress. And it is his fault. This is why Malachi says, the man who does not love but hates, but divorces his wife, he covers his garment with violence. That is the message we see here. God hates divorce. In the case of sexual infidelity, uh, 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 the... the spouse who has been cheated on has the right to pursue divorce. They have the, the legit biblical grounds to sue for divorce and be free from that. But it doesn't make divorce any less violent. The spouse who has been cheated on may pursue a divorce. The spouse who has been cheated on may be granted the right to remarriage. But that does not mean we get to treat all divorces the same handing out divorce certificates like candy given to children. You, know, you look at the statistics today, even uh, I was looking at statistics this week here in the United States. 2022, the estimated divorce rate is 44%. That is almost one in two. Now, it's not saying that all, of, uh, 44, all those marriages that end a divorce are the result of no-fault divorce. But I am saying how much easier no-fault divorce has made divorces happen where people are thinking that they are divorced because uh, thinking they're divorced and even if they're divorced in the eyes of the state it turns out in the eyes of God they have not been divorced at all and it puts them in the crosshairs it makes them liable to greater and greater sin and isn't that the very thing that Jesus has been getting at here in the Sermon on the Mount on how lightly we've been treating the law you say, well, I haven't committed adultery today, so I must be good with God. Well, Jesus says, well, have you looked at a woman with lustful intent? 
Well, guess what? You're an adulterer. And you say, well, I haven't killed anybody today. And Jesus says, well, have you called your brother an idiot? See, Jesus is showing the problem that happens when we treat his righteousness too lightly. This is why Jesus says to the people of God, you must have a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Here, Jesus is saying that the Pharisees' righteousness is, in fact, too low. Here's where the standard is. I think it shows us how low a view we have of marriage. Just because you and your wife are at each other's throats does not give you the right to leave her. Just because you find her cooking to be atrocious does not give you the right to leave her. Perhaps the better solution is for the two of you to maybe take a cooking class together. Just because she's getting old, pruny, and fat does not give you the right to send her away. Why? Ephesians chapter 5. God had instituted earthly marriages as a picture, as an evangelical witness to a watching world of the relationship of Christ to his church. And praise the Lord, we don't have a Savior who kicks us to the curb the first time we end up burning the toast. How awful would that be to have, uh, to hear of a, the good news, allegedly, of one who says he loves us one day, and then the next moment he loves us not. Where the basis of that marital bond is not uh, the oath that was made on the wedding day. Uh, but the changing circumstances and the, the rising and falling ebb of one's uh, emotional feelings towards one's spouse. Jesus does not love us in the same way that we see so many husbands loving their wives here in the West. And perhaps the most common imagery we, fa- in fact, see in the Old Testament is this, God's relationship to his people as that of a husband to his bride. You read the book of Hosea, the church has played the harlot, has acted the role of a prostitute. Even though the Lord says he has every right to divorce her, and as he contemplates it, Hosea chapter 11, he says, how can I give you up, O Israel? My heart recoils within me at the thought. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, so I will not come in wrath. Here, the great news of the gospel that we have is we have a God who loves his people in such a way that he will not kick us to the curb, even on account of our own infidelities. Why? Because as he has said, because he is not like us. We are so fickle in our love. We are so fickle in our affections towards one another. And that's why we have to treat marriage uh, uh, such higher, where marriage cannot be based off uh, the the ebb and flow of uh, of how much we love our wife's cooking or in how pretty we think she is. I remember I I had an old pastor who who once said at a a wedding, he says, your wife's never going to look more beautiful than she is on her wedding day. That's good on your wedding day. But it's all downhill from there. Because she's going to get older. And guess what? Your love for her not, cannot be contingent upon how good she looks in that wedding dress. 
There is something more substantive at play here. Your word must be your bond, which is the very thing Jesus is going to get at next week on oaths and vows. Because the very thing that we are called to do is to mirror our Savior. In commenting on this passage, J.C. Ryle says this. He says, this passage, if anything, teaches us our exceeding need of the Lord Jesus Christ's atoning blood to save us. Perhaps you are um, hearing this, saying, I, I'm guilty. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. I, have, I, I am this particular man or woman here in this particular situation. What should I do? Well, let me simply remind you of this, that divorce is not the unpardonable sin. The Lord's mercy runs far and wide, and he says that if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And this he demonstrates in the giving of his son as the great bridegroom of his bride, the one who promises that he will never leave us or forsake us, the one who promises that he will never divorce us. Who is it that could bring a charge against God's elect? It is God alone who justifies. Therefore, we are convinced that there is nothing in heaven or on earth, in life or in death, that can separate us from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus own exhortation here is in, in one sense this, to have our marriages begin to reflect the very purpose for which it was intended, that it would refer, reflect Christ's own unbreakable love for his church, that it would not be based on fleeting emotions, affections, or passions. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you that you have given uh, marriage as a great blessing. Uh, and yet with the disciples uh, in chapter 19, as they hear this word, they say, Lord, if this is the case, who here would ever get married? Uh, we pray that you would rouse us from our slumber, that you would give us sober hearts and minds as we contemplate the importance of marriage and the vows that we had taken to care for and love our wives. May we not treat them with disdain, may we not treat them flippantly, uh, but love them, even as Christ loved his bride, even as he loved them unto death. We ask these things in Christ's name, amen.